Hello and welcome to the Diminishing Returns Easter 2021 special. I'm thrilled mm. to be here. Thank you for having me, guys. Uh, I'm Calvin, of course, and uh, <laughs> on the on the podcast, as always, are the usual duo of hosts, Sol. Hello. And Alan. Hello. Now, I feel like this discussion has been quite some time coming. Mm. Um, <laughs> mm. I remember Sol and I had an awful lot of discussions about this film at university, probably because its follow-up, The Wicker Tree, was released while we were at university. So I think this film was very much in the consciousness around that time with the director's cut coming out and all that kind of stuff. Um, do you feel that way too, Sol? Has this conversation been a long time coming? I remember us talking about it a lot, but I do not for the life of me remember the content of the conversations. Like, I can't remember <laughs> if you hated it or if you liked it or what. Uh, so this is going to be an interesting discussion. I think we fucked up a bit because this is our Easter special, but it's it's a May Day film. What's the difference? Well, yeah, to be fair, it's all a load of bullshit, isn't it? <laughs> no, I mean, literally, what's the difference? Uh, I don't know. It all happens at the same time. I don't know what they are. What's the comment? <laughs> Easter. Well, the difference is, Alan, Easter's Easter is typically in April, and, and, and May Day's in May. Rabbits lay And eggs. sometimes Easter's in March. Is it? Occasionally, yeah. We're in Lent at the moment, right? What What have you given up? Um, caring about religious <laughs> practices. <laughs> <laughs> Back when we did our first ever Easter special of Diminishing Returns on God's Not Dead, Alan hilariously pretended <laughs> that he'd been converted to Christianity. And I, I did convinced. toy with the idea of, of doing a hilarious follow-up joke where I pretended I'd gone all <laughs> pagan. Uh, but I shan't be doing that. <laughs> but yeah, why, why are we doing this? Well, we threw this choice of episode over to our Patreon, as we often do. Uh, we said, what film would you like us to do for Easter? It's kind of become a thing now. We do a religious movie for Easter as an Easter special, the same way we do like a sex movie for Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm. And um, basically every Easter special we've ever done has been about a Christian film because, you know, it makes sense. Easter is a Christian <laughs> celebration. But for the first time, the Patreon subscribers, they selected a non-Christian film. Uh, although arguably this is a Christian film, you can definitely make that argument. Hmm. Uh, they chose The Wicker Man. Which makes the uh, second patron-selected uh, film we're looking at where the lead character has blue balls through a section of the film, <laughs> uh, following on from Eyes Wide Shut, of course. Yeah. Yeah. We have decided to not cover the Nicolas Cage 2006 remake, whatever it was. We've decided not to cover the Nicolas Cage remake of The Wicker Man in this episode, because we are saving that for a discussion in an upcoming Diminisode, which will be uh, released on our Patreon to coincide with this. So if you want to hear about that, uh, or hear a continuation of of this episode, head over to our Patreon and go get some Diminisodes in your system. Uh, It was based on a novel, uh, or at least sort of inspired by a novel about someone going into this small community of pagans, uh, but then relocated to um, Scotland... The, the 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 novel's called Ritual, yeah, and it's by a guy called David Pinner. David Pinner, and they certainly bought the rights to that book when making this film. 
although it seems like it's a very loose adaptation of it. I, I believe the book is much more of a dark comedy horror. I think the general idea is policeman goes into a small community yeah. and is, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. dealt with by but, pagan standards. But funnily enough, that um, that book was originally conceived of as a film, I, I believe, and was written as a film treatment that then got adapted into a, a novel because mm. they Nobody couldn't get it. funding. I think Michael Winner was involved back then. Mm. Um was a different and, time. Yeah, David Pinner, the author, is an actor, so I think he was trying to write himself a nice meaty part, and it just never went anywhere. Uh, but then things went full circle, and yeah, it got adapted into this film by Anthony Schaffer, who is a writer I think very highly of. I think you less so, Alan. <laughs> what, based on this book, this uh, film alone, or just his work in general? No, he also wrote the <laughs> wonderful film Sleuth, yeah. which we have mentioned before, and I, I think is a, a that combined with this, I think, just make, make him seem like an incredible writer. But No Peter Schaffer, is he? <laughs> <laughs> um... Funnily enough, actually, I, I, the version of the film I watched last night, the title screen called it Anthony Schaffer's The Wicker Man, which was very odd. Because he, he's, he's not exactly a household name, is he, you know? It's... Well, more than Robin Hardy. <laughs> well, yes, Robin Hardy, the director of this film. I don't really know how to feel about him, but I'll put a pin in that for later. Uh, we'll come back to that. <laughs> oh, good. Well, I'm looking forward to talking more about him because... I find him very curious. He has a very small mm. filmography. I think he has credits on, like, what, four yes. films? Uh, two of them are with Three, films. I believe, yeah. Three, right, okay. Hmm. I mean, I, I've not met him, but I, I've <laughs> sat within a few metres of him as he did a Q&A at the... Uh, I don't know if it was the world premiere, but certainly one of the very early screenings of The Wicker Tree. Hmm. Uh, so we've got that to talk about later on, my, my first-hand experiences Could with that Could you see film. the regret in his eyes? Yeah. <laughs> No, no. That's why I think he's a very interesting character to talk about. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to spoil it now. Okay. But it, <laughs> he, was, it. he was an interesting we man. Teased it. <laughs> yeah. Let's let's jump straight into the film then. I guess. What genre would you put the Wicker Man into? Mm. Ooh, it's it, a tricky one. It, it doesn't quite feel like it's getting into horror in a. I, I think it. I personally, I think this is solidly horror film. Yeah. But. I appreciate that it's not got any ghosts and goblins in it, it's not full of gore, it's horror, but then it's a very kind of pure horror, I suppose. It's, um, and I think a lot of people would look at that and just say, well, it's a, a thriller or a crime drama. Mm-hmm. Do you believe in the term folk horror, though? Yes, well, I, I wanted to get onto this. Um, so on this podcast, we've been trying to get some phrases into the dictionary into the zeitgeist uh just to kind of make a name for ourselves get ourselves out there uh we settled on trying to get cinema unawareate or cinematic concealism out into the zeitgeist as a term used for the genre uh most notably employed by sasha baron cohen for borat and ali g but other films like bad trip and Windy City Heat, yeah, films that kind of employ real footage of real people, but they're being manipulated or toyed with to uh, create a narrative. You know, I thought, yeah, that's a legitimate genre, that that we need a name for it, we should coin it. And I think Mark Gatiss had the same exact thought uh, about ten years ago, when he was like, hmm, I'd really like to get a phrase in the dictionary, but what can I, <laughs> what can I come up with? And the best he could do is folk horror, which has really taken off as a concept, but it really bugs me, because on one hand I recognise that there's a need for 
a kind of genre signifier here. But on the other hand, it's the most wishy-washy, poorly defined <laughs> fucking genre in the world. It does my tits in. Because how familiar with folk horror are you? I know that like this is classified as one, and Midsummer is classified as one, and that's about yes, all. Well, I Mid- know. Midsummer is basically a Wicker Man remake, um, so it, it would fit into pretty much every genre. This film does as well. What about the village? Mm, well, this is where the genre breaks down, Alan. Um, <laughs> if if you if you read into it, there's basically the Wicker Man is one of the like genre codifiers, along with uh, is it Witchfinder General and some yeah. other classic British film. And Mark Gatiss decided all this. And the three elements that need to be present for folk horror are number one, isolation. Uh, which is pretty easy to come by in one form or another for horror films, I think. Number two, there needs to be a kind of an odd way of thinking, a kind of organised, you know, you could call it religious or or cultural practice. It's quite a vague term, that. Mm. Number three, there needs to be a, quote, happening, whatever that means. And I think that generally refers to, if not a supernatural event, the character's belief or building towards some kind of supernatural event so in the wicker man they are of course building to a a big event which has supernatural undertones although the film certainly doesn't seem to um put any supernatural stuff on that you know it's just Mm. a bunch of mad people being crazy religious ritual Mm. those are the rules they're generally regarded as the rules the problem with that is that for example the evil dead is firmly firmly a piece of folk horror if you follow those guidelines and i don't think that's what people are going for when they talk about folk horror i think they're looking for thoughtful brooding british films i think yeah folk horror is anything where the main character walks into a pub there's someone playing a fiddle and then they all stop and look at him uh, no, because American that's... American Werewolf in London isn't folk horror. But that that section of it is. But that's because they go to but London. Then they right? go off. That's they go if to they London. just stayed where they were, it would be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I like your definition more. <laughs> there has to be a young woman in a white dress with flowers on her hair. <laughs> yeah. Again, that. I mean, I think basically does what you're saying fit the Wicker Man, Midsummer, <laughs> and the Vivitch. <laughs> uh, they're like the three films people use to, to... Oh, and A Field in England, I suppose. That's a pretty famous one, isn't it? I was going to ask about the Vivitch, um, because that was one that when I fin- I, fin- I watched The Wicker Man on um, Amazon Prime, I rented it on there, and then it came up with, you know, you might like these other films as well. And it was an yes. awful lot of, like, elevated horror stuff, like Hereditary, and yes. the Vivitch was one of them. And I wouldn't have thought of that as a folk horror film, um, but maybe that's just the the issue with this definition is that it's so specific because mm. folk horror for me is something like this or Midsummer where it there's a brightness to it. It's almost like an aesthetic thing, whereas oh, I don't know. Right. Or, or, Interesting. That's because that's a dark, brooding film, whereas. Mm. Midsummer, and to a lesser extent, the Wicker Man revel in how kind of sunny and superficially friendly they are. It's that's kind of... exactly it, and that's what yeah. struck me about this film. And I think it's why I really didn't like it when I first saw it, when I was like fifteen, sixteen, or whatever, when I first watched it, because it isn't. The music is very upbeat and poppy and folky, and it's quite bright. There's no, you know, most of the horror takes place during the day. I, I didn't know if it was an aesthetic thing as much as a sort of, you know, characters being isolated and all that kind of stuff. 
this is just this is what's annoying with folk horror is that it's just bollocks it's not like a real thing <laughs> it's just and i know all genre is just like a load of rules to put things in a box and it's just supposed to be a useful tool for us um but i just I, folk horror has really wound me up for a while because i think it's very poorly defined and no one seems to agree on what it actually is how do we feel about the songs actually i hate them <laughs> <laughs> I really, I don't like folk music. I don't like country music. I, this, I mean, it, it, it's a big stumbling block for me to enjoy this film because I really do hate the soundtrack so much. And I, I know that it, it is almost musical irony in the sense that all these horrific things are going on, but it's got this quite yeah. upbeat sort of like folksy, like me and my girl went to the fields and her face was round <laughs> and all that. And I, I just don't, it, it doesn't. I guess it is creating a mood, but it's not one that I find scary. And when I come to this, I kind of... Because there's a lot of horrific stuff in this film and images oh, yeah, that yeah, are yeah. very scary, but they are, you know, paired with, you know, a man in a fiddle and it, it just doesn't work for me in that way. <laughs> I hate the first few songs, but there's a few songs in this film I genuinely love and I, I you know, would listen to, or do listen to outside of it. I think Willow's song, when she's trying to seduce him, is a, a really, really beautiful, lovely piece of music. Please come, say how do. The things I'll give to you. I love that bouncy maypole song with the incredibly scottish accent of it you know hmm. in the woods there grew a tree and on that bed there was a girl and on that girl there was a man and from that man there was a seed and from that seed there was a boy and from that boy there was a man and from that man there was a grave and from that grave there grew a tree But all the other stuff is like, yeah, folk music's annoying, isn't it? And 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 that's something we'll get into here. I, I think I actually have a degree of extremely mild, admittedly, uh, PTSD attached to this film. No. <laughs> because, because my ex-girlfriend's family are all very, like, hippie-ish and in touch with uh, their pagan roots and stuff. So I, I've attended a number of events that I would say qualify as Wicker Man-esque. And <laughs> I hate them. But I, find, I think that helps make this film really scary to me. Because, <laughs> because the thought of being trapped in like a pub garden with a bunch of like old beardy men like painted green with leaves <laughs> in their hair playing the fiddle is really scary, I think. <laughs> And I, and I think I am going to get quite, you know, arty-farty pretentious on this front when I sort of talk about why I think this film's scary later on. But but yeah, remember I've said all that, because it, it ties into the kind of fear of the other, which I think is what the, the engine that drives this film for me. See, I, I think maybe that's what I'm missing here then, because I, I really took away from this, like, Summer Isle's a pretty nice place to live. I, I wouldn't mind being there. Like, you know, they've got good community spirit, sing-alongs, orgies <laughs> in the park. But that's that's the irony of it, isn't it, Alan? That's what the film's doing. Our our protagonist, Sergeant Howie Iwa Wuwa, <laughs> is you know, dare I say, a bit of a knob. 
And (laughs) I don't think we're supposed to like him particularly. He is this righteous fanatic, well not fanatical, he's, you know, very Christian, very devout Christian policeman, and he's... How dare you tell these children a maypole is a cock? (laughs) (laughs) he's he's just a bit rude and a knob and so but he's clearly there to represent one side of the coin and then you know he's going into the opposite end of the spectrum which is this you know the these people who follow a much freer more you know on one hand more sinister religion but then on the other hand they're actually happy and enjoying themselves while he isn't and you know depending what cut of the film you watch you you open on him in church like eating the flesh of christ or whatever fucking shit they do it's like Mm. it's an interesting um well that that's that is i mean you've you've sort of nailed one of the main issues with the film really isn't it like and i I do think this is deliberate on the part of the film but i you know you don't like the main character who was sort of you'd expect to be on his side and he's the one trying to do good he's trying to save someone's life and and uphold the law and all this but he is a knob, and I, I think that's very deliberate because even just off the page with that script, a slightly different characterization would make him a lot more sympathetic, just in the way it's delivered. Completely, yeah. And also, this community that goes into, you know, it's a bit of a small, like, weird little inbred community, but they basically seem happy. But, yeah, it is a bit of a problem because at the end of the film, where, spoiler alert, he gets burned alive in a big wicker man, I just don't care. <laughs> really, I don't, I'm not really yeah, thinking. Oh my I god, this, this is a terrible be a thing. Problem. I'm thinking, well, you know, just get get on with it. I, I think if some people have to die to for to facilitate a happy life, well, you know, <laughs> I think this is a problem. You know, this is a problem or a difference between us, Alan, in that I can kind of empathise that as much as someone might be a bit of a knob, they probably don't deserve to be burnt alive for it. <laughs> And he is ultimately trying to save a young girl's life, um, and you can just kind of humanize with that. If you're but they're not trying to save the crops, it's, it's important. Like they'll all starve. To yeah, death a bunch of that. fucking shitty apples. <laughs> Fruit's not meant to grow on these shitty little islands. It's against nature. But that's why you need a mid-Victorian agronomist to fix it. <laughs> if I if I can break the uh, the tie here, uh, I think I'm going to find myself more on Sol's side here. Uh, and <laughs> Not because I sympathised with Sergeant Howie's sort of religious beliefs or uh, why he believes he's you know should be doing the things that he's doing, but Edward Woodward is a phenomenal uh, performer in the part. I think, mm. and no, I, I think despite all of the puritanical stuff, and he's so uptight and he's so by the book and it, you know um, quite authoritarian in a lot of ways, I do nonetheless find him very sympathetic and. Mm. It, there is just something about him that humanizes the, uh, the he's part. completely in over his head i think that's the thing uh, you know i don't i don't think you get a sense that he's a bad person mm. you know there's a reason i said he's a bit of a knob rather than he's a dickhead like he's you know you you could probably have a nice chat with him and bring him around to, like if, mm. if you had to see him every night at the pub you could probably get him to realize that Christianity is a load of wank too, you know. It's I... <laughs> no, I don't know about that. Yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> He's pretty hard line on the old Christianity. Mm. I think he'd be fine with you. Like if you lived in his community, it'd be fine until he found out you were gay, and then he'd be like, "Oh, so I can yeah. never speak to you again. You actually disgust me." I'm like, oh, oh, that's a bit. He's the old-fashioned fella. 
Yeah. <laughs> but yes, but that, yeah, I, I agree, actually, Calvin. I think the performance is great from yeah, Edward Woodward, yeah. not just in the uh, superficial sense that he nails every sort of level he's going for, but yeah, I think that character does tread a very fine line. And for me, this film is just anti-religion in general. The, the message oh, of this is like, yeah, oh, look yeah. at you Christians looking at other people's religions and thinking they're stupid, but look at your religion. Ugh, you're eating the flesh of Christ, you weirdo. Oh, like, yeah, which yeah. is 100%. pretty sort of like root one kind of atheism. But, you know, it's the 70s. Yeah, but it was 1973. This was pretty unique stuff to be putting out there, to be <laughs> yeah. honest, back then. And, and I, I think it does an, a nice job of that. It manages to take the piss out of paganism and Christianity. Mm. And sort of one <laughs> <else would. laughs> yeah. So, I mean, to, to sort of go through the film itself, my memory of this film is that it opens on an aeroplane flying to the island, but I watched it last night and it opens on him in church. Now, I, I'm aware there's multiple cuts of this film. I, I feel like, Calvin, you've probably done a bit of research into this <laughs> and can clear up what's happened, because mm. I do own this film on DVD, I should add, but it's up in the attic and I couldn't be bothered going to find it last night, so I just found a dodgy copy online, <laughs> which... <laughs> Which I, d- I don't know how the law works, but I think that's probably okay. Is it like video game ROMs? You're allowed to download a ROM if you own the g- if you own own the game somewhere. Is that how it works? Anyway, um, for a second I was like, oh, I don't remember this film opening in a church, mm. but it's just because it's the first few seconds. But apparently that's a different cut, is it? So yes, because uh, I think the version that we all watched is the final cut, as it's known, um, right. which is not the. The, the theatrical cut, I believe, was about 88 minutes long, and it ended up that way because... I'm not even sure if Robin, ha- Robin Hardy exactly had a, a, like a, a final picture lock on this. Yeah, it just sounds like it yeah. was chopped up. I know Roger Corman had some influence in the edits that were made because they wanted to stick this in a, a double bill with Don't Look Now, so it needed to be under 90 minutes. Um, but then a director's cut came out in, I think, the mid-2000s, which was certainly the DVD that I bought and experienced the film on for the first time. So I definitely saw that director's cut. And Mm. then there is still a fabled longer version out there, um, maybe an hour, 50 minutes long, something like that, with more scenes, but apparently a good deal of that has been lost. This final cut is apparently as close as it came to Robin Hardy's kind of desired edit of the Mm. film and Mm. there are i mean i don't know if you noticed it i certainly noticed it there are two scenes that really stuck out for being of significantly lower uh, film grade quality um the opening was one of them and then a scene later on where christopher lee brings a young boy to go up to brit eklund's room um Mm. but there is Mm. some reorganizing of scenes as well the scene where brit eklund does her dance to try and tempt um sergeant howie that comes in the theatrical cut much earlier than in the right, final cut. Yeah, I thought it did. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Because I, I think the stuff with him doing his religious nonsense at the beginning is quite nice to set up that character and to set up that religious element. Mm. I think that works. And in terms of having her seduce him later, I think that works as well because it has more time to build up and kind of, mm. yeah, get those blue balls really going. <laughs> but it's they are testing him uh, for you know logistical reason, and it makes sense she'd get that out of the way earlier, like once he's landed, rather than being like, oh shit, we need to get a new fool. <laughs> <laughs> they want to make sure he's a proper virgin. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The plot for anyone who hasn't seen it, the the film opens with well depending what version you watch it opens with him in church but that's kind of irrelevant it's just setting up that he's a a christian 
uh, and then we see an airplane flying to Summer Isle and landing. And basically, a policeman has gone on his lonesome to investigate. Is he investigating? No, it's not a murder. It's a disappearance, isn't it? He's received a letter with a photograph of a young girl saying, please come and investigate. This young girl's gone missing on our island. And it's this little island in the middle of the Hebrides, so, you know, it's yeah. you can't get there, really. And... Well, there's no policeman on the bloody island. He has to come in from the mainland. Yeah. It's that remote. Mm-hmm. It's a very good setup, I think, because, you know, it's it's not as simple as he's investigating. When he gets there, the villagers don't even acknowledge that the girl existed in the first place. You know, it's a really quite compelling uh, setup for a film. And, and it really struck me watching this again last night. I've never watched this film without knowing roughly what happens. Mm. You know, it's one of those films I took in from osmosis before I saw it. And I, I would kill to see this film without any idea of what to expect. I think it mm. would be a, a really quite incredible experience. It, it it really plays both ways, but the way that I think it plays for most people who will come to it knowing the ending is the same way that Midsummer plays, in that it's like this fear of an inevitable conclusion kind of creeping in. You know exactly what's coming, and it generates horror because there's just no you know, there's no way out. You're just kind of slowly drawn to this conclusion. And they even foreshadow that quite early on in the film when uh, Howie opens up a, a, a an empty desk at the school, believing it to be the missing girl, Rowan, uh, her desk. And there's a beetle tied to a, a nail inside the desk, just slowly walking round and round. And the girl at the side says, you know, Yep, he's just walking and walking, and you know he's getting—he's going to end up taut, you know, <laughs> tied up against the nail. But he doesn't realize that. He thinks he's walking in a straight line, and blah 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 blah. And you know that's exactly what they're doing with him. It's this weird pagan symbolism. Yeah, and that—I think you're right there. I think I don't know if I ever saw this with uh, not knowing what was sort of happening and. And I think that would be better because ultimately, if you're watching this, you'd probably be thinking, oh, this guy's going to work it all out in the end and sort of escape yeah. and be the hero. And so perhaps it would come a bit of more of a jarring shock at the end. But also, yeah, that mystery element would play out a little bit more mysteriously, yeah, yeah. I guess. Because, yeah, he's going, he's trying to find this girl. Oh, never heard of her. Don't know, recognize her. We'd know her. We'd know her around here, Mr. Mr. Howie. <laughs> That's not the right accent. <laughs> but uh yeah they they uh they all deny knowledge of her he finds evidence that she does exist so obviously he's like right everyone's in on it what's going on they're all mm. trying to and break me and this speaks to something that i i've realized recently calvin and i have had discussions about what we find scary in horror before mm. and it kind of comes down to you know I'm generally more scared by supernatural stuff. Calvin's generally more scared by realism. Um, But there is one kind of exception to that with me, which is I'm actually really creeped out by, disturbed perhaps is the word. (laughs) (laughs) No. Um, I find it incredibly disturbing to watch, like, conspiratorial horror. Mm. Things where, like, the whole world is kind of against you or or there's no foreseeable way out of this situation you're in because a group of people you're surrounded by are in on something. So Mm. a good example of that would be the film Eden Lake at the end of that, if you've ever seen that film. Or um, Midsummer, obviously, being basically a Wicker Man remake. Unofficially, it's the same exact thing. But, you know, anything like that where you're kind of surrounded by people who are in on the same thing as you. And And I think it probably 
stems from the same psychological root that creeps me out with zombies because that's ultimately about your friends and family and neighbors being corrupted by evil and turned into this thing that wants to kill you i think it all kind of stems from the same place but it it really gets under my skin and i think i think the wicker man is the definitive example of this sort of thing that i'm talking about where the the horror comes because everyone else is in on this dark secret that you're trying to figure out and i think the reason this film's so scary to me is that there's a real sense of like stop digging mate you just do not realize how much danger you're like getting yourself into like what do you think you're going to achieve you uncover this murder they're obviously all in on it you think you're just going to walk off the island alive and and he obviously does you know he's he's got this kind of arrogance about him very much by design on the part of the film he's not scared for his own well-being particularly no he's used to being the authority figure and people respecting the badge at least so but yeah yeah, i think perhaps that's something of a problem maybe that's one of the psychological elements i can't get into in that that character never seems afraid whereas i think if there was a bit of doubt creeping in there like oh my god maybe i should just get out of here Mm. maybe i should have an escape plan kind of thing and you never have that and i think that's missing i'm probably not giving too much away here say i don't particularly care for the film and i don't (laughs) think it has the effect on me that it's sort of intending to and apparently has on you and i i have this with horror a lot i just don't get it it's not i don't find it horrific in any way i don't find it scary and i'm not quite sure if that's just me missing something is it this i i think the the filmmaking itself is just very kind of loose and and i think it's it's deliberate but i'm not i just don't think it works very well there's this vague storytelling that they're doing what about disturbing does the film not work for you on that level either no Fair enough. Well, I, mean, I say just just to the point about um Sergeant Howie himself. Like, I feel like he does get creeped out. I feel like he does get disturbed. It's just his response to that is, you know, it is that kind of fight. I'm going to fl- arrest him. Yeah, well, yeah, no, exactly. It's like he sees the like that when he sees the beetle um tied up going around mm. the nail in the desk. He's like really horrified by that. But his response to that is to just sort yell of, at a child. Yeah, exactly. And you know, <laughs> why would you do that, you nasty girl? Yeah. <laughs> And that's just his response, and I, I, I really like that about him because he's so, mm. you know, not not in the sense that I want to hang out with the guy, but it's an as- an element of his character you just that to I tell you what to do sometimes. Well, there is just mm. something about it very relatable about the just trying to stick to some kind of order and the the structure of the world as we know it, and right, this thing is wrong, yeah. therefore the authority figure will go and sort it out, and he's a policeman and he's so confident in that, mm. and I think you do see it chipped away bit by bit as the film goes on um he never quite loses it but i i think i I really like even at the end actually i'm skipping forward quite a bit where they do kind of corner him on the corner of the cliff there is this bit where he's i who will live again not your damned apples well but before even that like there's a bit where christopher lee's giving his spiel about the whole thing and he's sort of like running around on the edge of the cliff and you get the sense i feel like he's looking as if like can i jump down from this is there oh completely he's he's sizing up the area and and when i was younger and i watched this and some friends of mine saw it and they weren't sold they were like mate you could well easily get out of that wicker man it's made out of fucking twigs it's like yeah but he's he's accepted the inevitability of his situation there's it's hopeless what are you gonna do you you get out of this you break your way out of this thing you jump out of the fire all right let's say you do that no problem 
There's like, what, 50, 60 villagers stood around. Some of them are armed, I think, like in a ring around you. You're going to, what, run run past them, beat them back to a boat or something? And like, what, what's your plan? You're, it's, you're fucked, mate. There's nothing you can do. Smash the you wicker, shagged Brett Eklund, jump down onto the ground, uh, karate chop Christopher Lee, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then everyone else will be scared and then you could run off. I don't even think it would be easy to break out of that thing. Like that looks like real well, no, I don't thick think it would, no. stuff. Like I mean, I, I was quite impressed by that actually, and that would be even more. That I mean, that's almost even more terrifying because it's something that shouldn't be so uh, confining. Like he's literally just held in place yeah. with some you know bits of wood, and yet it. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, like I know we've jumped ahead here, but just now we're here. That wicker man, just the image of it, in this imposing oh, no. thing in the sky on a cliff edge, and then it starts mm. burning. It is a great image. I think truly it's one of the all-time great images in cinema. And it does immediately evoke, unless this is just my kind of cultural memory of it from this film, it does evoke sort of a paganistic, yeah, religious type ritual, mm. like kind of like a ritual, hey, we're we're doing a bonfire thing. Oh, completely. And and, and, and you know, as I say, I, I do have... I do have a degree of like Louis Theroux esque first hand experience with this sort of thing from, you know, obviously it's people who are kind of, you know, in a twee middle class way trying to keep their traditions alive rather than actually believing this kind of crap. But, you know, it's, yeah, it's very authentic. It's from in my experience. It's, if you've ever stood and seen a fucking Morris dance procession come down <laughs> the street, you know, it's, it's terrifying shit. Something I noticed, which I thought was a bit odd, was the film doesn't have a sort of very specific point of view. Like, you would expect that we would see everything from the policeman's point of view. You know, the outsider coming in, the person we're following, really. But we do Mm. go off and just see, sort of, see other bits and pieces. We see other things. It's very sort of wishy-washy with that whole thing. It does feel very much like kind of eye of God. We know that they're trying to trick him, <laughs> even when he does. You know, we see them looking at him. We see them pranking him and all this kind of stuff, which mm. is interesting. And we don't always experience it from his side. We sometimes do see it from from their points of view as well. But I don't think that's like, oh, that's an interesting direction uh, idea. I think it's just sloppy direction. I didn't really know what he was doing and just sort of like... I don't, I don't get the impression that that's a deliberate kind of device. Maybe it wasn't deliberate, but I I think it was effective. It does the, mm. it does sort of lean into this whole sense of inevitability about the whole thing. Like yeah. as soon as he went, you know, landed on that island, there was never a chance he was going to escape and it it does escalate, yeah. I think. I think it does build. Or at least it does yeah. build in the version of the film that we all saw, the final cut. I don't know if I'd have felt that way about the previous version that I saw a few years ago. So I mean, in terms of the the cut I was struck by just the breakneck speed of this film and the pacing of it, but mm-hmm. I've I've heard a lot of people make comments to suggest they think it's quite a slow film, so I didn't know if that was just me, but I, I was completely drawn in from the second he got to the island. I found everything incredibly compelling, entertaining. Mm. Well, that is, that, I found it quite boring and slow, actually. <laughs> really? I don't know about slow paced, but I found it boring. Yeah, certainly uh, after sort of about half an hour in, and the kind of the mystery elements sort of petered out a little bit. The back end of the film is mostly just people dancing around and singing. And it's just like, mm. all right, get on with it. But that's the climax, isn't it? I mean, that that's a great scene, for example, where they they all have to pass through these swords that are, you know, going over the head. And the, the implication is the music's going to stop and someone's going to have their head chopped off. And that's, you know, it's a game of chance. Mm. 
I think that's a great scene. It's it's really tense. See, I, I, that's it. I, that's it. I didn't get anything out of that. I, it wasn't tense. I didn't think they were going to cut his head off. I didn't think they were going to cut anyone else's head off. Well, why not? Because you know they burn him. Maybe, maybe it's it. But yeah, that's obviously not going to be the end of the film, is it? It's just going to be a, like they're not going to kill him at that point. But they might try and chop him, and he kind of breaks out the swords, and then you know his cover's blown or whatever. You know, anything could go wrong. It's kind of. I was worried about Rowan. I thought she might be like because uh, I couldn't remember whether she was actually alive or killed before he got there or if she was in on it or not and uh, well until the very end really goes running off with her but uh i was curious mm. about because he does sort of look over his shoulder and see a girl you know someone in a costume that he thinks could be her um so i was more in suspense for her there let me clarify that calvin were you curious or were you concerned oh uh hmm um i wouldn't because uh... that's the thing if, if if our main thrust of this mystery is he's looking for this girl i didn't care whether this girl was alive or dead or, or anything. I didn't care about anything. I think that's part of the problem. But I think, oh, I, I did, I think actually. that probably speaks more about you than anything else, Alan, because <laughs> generally speaking, you put a child in peril and that's, you know, it's like save the cat. It's like, how could you possibly take issue with... Well, exactly. That's that's the point. And, and obviously I don't care about children in real life, but at least when I'm watching a film, I can understand that that is what I'm supposed to be caring about. That's your MacGuffin or whatever. So I can get on board with it from a plot point of view. But here I didn't. I, I don't know. I just never, nothing here connected with me or, or really clicked. And there's some nice moments, there's some sort of nice little bits going on. But then I wasn't engaged on an emotional level, I suppose, is what I'm getting at. And that ultimately mm. was a big miss for me. And that's why the end was boring. I didn't mm. think the direction really pulled me in or, or, or told me any emotions. It was just a sort of vague, wavy journey on this island. And it was just, uh, yeah, okay, it's the end. I mean, I guess I'm not drawn in emotionally, unless you count fear. <laughs> but I, I find it incredible. I don't. I think we're just. Yeah, I think we have different things that we need from a film. I, I, I find the matter of fact what's going on very interesting, and I find this guy investigating what the hell is going on on this island really compelling. Can we talk a little bit about Christopher Lee? Because we talked a bit about um, Edward Woodward, but Christopher Lee is obviously the other main star of the film. Yes, 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 yes. And I think he's terrific. Um, I I wish that the, the, the criticism that I have of the version of the film that we saw is that this character's introduction comes quite early in the film. He brings a young lad up to go up to Briteclan's room, um, presumably mm. for a shag, um, while uh, Sergeant Howie hears it all from his hotel room. And uh, the next time we see him is later on in the film where Harry has to go and visit him to get permission to exhume the body of what he thinks is Rowan. And I think that that moment works as a much better introduction where he's in that big chair and he kind of pops out. And at that point, you yeah. would think when he's going to see like the Lord of the Land, you would expect some like stuffy old man kind of thing. But it's actually Christopher Lee who's quite smiley and charming and takes him on a tour of the place. I feel like that might have worked better had we not seen yeah, that scene right. earlier on because by that point you know that he's in on it the whole island is in on it whereas if you didn't have that scene you might think that the lord of the land might actually be above that and he might be another kind of authority figure that sergeant howie can um you know get on board with yeah i think um, the, the, the way he plays it though it is you do get this sense of 
manipulation from him straight away. Even though he's like, I oh, know, yeah, well, I'll do whatever you need. Obviously, no, no, I want to help as much as possible. But there is a creepiness mm-hmm. behind it, which he plays very. Subtly. I think it's handled really well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the way he says, you know, you don't seem concerned by my accusations, and he's like, well, yeah, because I know my island, and it's a load of bollocks, mate. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and 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 I love the bit at the end when he says like. I need permission to exhume this grave to look for clues. And he's like, well, I was under the impression I already gave you that. Like, right, that was yeah. 20 minutes ago I said, that's fine. Get on with it. <laughs> it was, it's just, I, I, I really like their dynamic. But no, I completely agree, actually, Calvin. That scene at the start, you're right. Because the other thing it does is, um, I, I think that Britt Eklund's uh, Willow's attempted seduction of, of Howie is... Um, more meaningful without knowing that she's just like sleeping with any random like kid that (laughs) christopher Mm. lee sends over away as well yeah but yeah you know so you know what happens he 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 goes looking for her there's a lot of weird clues he ends up digging up this grave that he finds and there's a rabbit or a hare Mm. and he takes his costume which is the kind of punch and judy-esque fool mm. character and he has to dance around as part of their celebrations to infiltrate it until rowan turns up then he runs off to save her and the big twist is she leads him to a site where they are gonna burn him alive he was the sacrifice she was a kind of lure Ooh. so um yeah they burn him alive and then it's i think incredibly incredibly disturbing bleak ending to this film they mm. all stand around singing mm. uh shouts oh god oh jesus christ a couple of times it's a bit like how the uh the statue of liberty has become kind of synonymous with planet of the apes like they just stick it on the front of the yeah. dvd now it's same here it's like what you said earlier on sol about experiencing this film without any prior knowledge of mm. it i think seeing that wicker man at the end because it's such a striking image yeah. It would mean so much more if it wasn't all over everything to do with the film. And I know that, you know, it's the title, so obviously you're probably going to want to stick the Wicker Man itself yeah. on the poster. But yeah, it, it it's really terrifying. There's something about the design of it. It's just really scary. Yeah, the cultural significance of it as well. You know, there's Burning Man Festival in America every year, and mm. that was, you know inspired by this film Mm. um they obviously approach it with much more of a peace and love kind of hippie outlook but Mm. you know that's that's a pretty big deal for a film from the 70s to still be commanding you know thousands of people every year to gather and fuck about with glow sticks in the (laughs) desert it's uh Mm. do you know what i think why the ending doesn't quite work for me is that you know the idea of a bunch of uh, people on some little village in the middle of nowhere with sort of some weird cult rabbit worship thing. That doesn't really bother me at all. But the idea of a of a hardcore Christian with authority, of a policeman, that's scary to me. <laughs> but they do have authority, Alan. They, they're completely in control and they can lure people to their islands. That's, and nah, that's their culture, though. I'm not getting involved. I want to go to other people's cultures and tell them what to believe or not to. I think it's fine to be concerned for people in other parts of the world personally but. so you know about pagan stuff uh, i know we're wrapping up about the film but there, there's one burning question that i have Wh- what was mm. christopher lee supposed to be dressed as for that like parade at the end because he looked like <laughs> oh, the what? the girl that comes out of the tv in the ring <laughs> <laughs> it was really strange yeah. i didn't know what he was <laughs> supposed to be um 
I don't know if it's a specific thing. It probably is. It's probably some sort of there was, god. There was some mention when they were or... looking through a book and telling the story or something. It was the mm. the Lord had to dress up as a woman. I can't remember why, but that was part of the deal. And uh, yeah, it was, it's probably okay. Mother Nature or something like that. I don't fucking know. Uh, hmm. But yeah. I do think that the uh, the casting of like the townspeople. I don't know if they were just cast locally and these were just people that lived on the island or what. But possibly, but I, I think Britt Eklund was, was a local. Really you can tell by her accent. <laughs> <laughs> he was dubbed, of course. What? Uh, but you, you know, I I just there's something about the craggy, sort of weather beaten faces of like a load of these uh, well, townsfolk. <laughs> I tell you right now, one of them is one of the cast members in Balamori, that <laughs> CBBC oh, really? uh, series. Yeah, she's like the bus driver or something. Oh, I think. Wow. One, of the t- one of the people at the end in the procession. Huh. Fair it's funny. So, uh, can I ask a, a question, Calvin, uh, about Britt Eklund? So, she was in yes. the she was in the Christopher Lee Bond film. Um, Wait, yes. Was that the one she's in? Yes. Later. I was just about to ask which Bond film. Was she was dubbed she in that? I can't, I can't remember. No, she wasn't, funnily enough. Well, I guess she's not Scottish, is she? But it doesn't matter in Bond. No, <laughs> no, in uh, no in Bond, they don't really touch upon her nationality. I don't think. Um, but yeah, I, I think the Bond producers saw this film. Uh, <laughs> you know, because you know they cast two people from it. But also, Sean Connery's uh, ex-wife is in this as well. What? Diane Kilento, uh, Silento. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, who played the teacher? I think was it the teacher? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So three Bond connections. This, huh. well, if you're going to film four, because they're all Scottish. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, shall we rate the film? All right, I'll go first because I think I might end up coming in the middle of you two. I, I have been, <laughs> I have been quite positive about this film throughout this conversation, and certainly I enjoyed it more, an awful lot more coming back to it this time than my memories of it from when I first saw it, where I just didn't get it i think i was probably a bit too mm. young and it is in the in the gen uh gender bending i was going to say genre bending um sort of mm. uh, sense of it. it it is quite hard to peg and i i don't know if that affects my enjoyment of it because i just don't find it that scary it's a lot of stuff that is scary in concept but when i'm watching it I'm a bit in suspense, and certainly this time I couldn't remember that much about the story, so I was curious to know what was going to happen. So I really enjoyed it on that level. I wasn't unsettled watching it, and I'm not going to go to sleep having nightmares about it or anything like that. Uh, And and the the music was just a a real nail in a coffin for me. Like That was just, (laughs) I couldn't bear any song in this or the score, and I just kept thinking that if you gave this another soundtrack, it'd probably... It, you know, one, I'd probably love it to be honest. Um, as it stands, I'm just going to give it a seven, uh, but which, which is more than what I thought it was going to be coming back. I, I did get an awful lot out of it, but I mm. think I think it's probably better written than it is directed as well. Like, yeah, completely. Yeah, hundred well, percent. Uh, I'll pick up on that. I would love to see this film made by a better director. I guess. Um, I think the directing's quite. I mean, loose at best. I think the performances are really good, and I, you know, I'm yes. pre- prepared to give the director some credit for that. But I think there's the structures all over. The fact that you can cut it the different way and move things around, you know, it should have more, uh, you know, of a solid nature than that. Maybe that's deliberate. It doesn't feel deliberate. Anyway, I, obviously, it didn't connect with me. It just didn't hook me in. But you know, I don't want to slag it off. I don't think it's a bad film, and. Uh, 
I, I, I just don't really get why it's quite taken on the cult uh, status it has. Um, basically, I'm giving it a six. Oh. So, like I say, not it's not a bad film by any means. Just it just leaves. I was, me I was cult, gearing up really. for another Dawn of the Dead situation. <laughs> Bite, gritting my teeth. Um, I, I kind of agree with that. I, I think, I think for a debut film, which is what this is, it's a remarkable piece of work from Robin Hardy. But that, that's it. He was, it was his debut film, wasn't it? But it's not like he'd never worked before. He wasn't twenty-two years old. He got a lot of work behind him. It's just perhaps nothing of this feature-length narrative nature, and perhaps that's why the structure's a bit loose. Hmm. Yeah, I don't. Had he made short films? So I think he'd yeah, he, been working as a writer was, and an actor. I think he worked in American producer, TV and stuff, and just sort of churned stuff out. It was all kind of just nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah, nothing of a great artistic value, basically. I think it's his first directing credit on his I, uh, IMDb page, isn't it? I'm just gonna yeah, but I just think there's a lot of stuff from Weird, 1960s American yeah. TV that doesn't get on IMDb. Corporate films, yeah, like, exactly. On, yeah. On there. yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I this is one of my favourite films, and and I do think the strength is the script. As I say, I think a lot of Anthony Schaffer. I kind of get why it opens with Anthony Schaffer's The Wicker Man on certainly the cut I watched last night. But, you know, I, I don't think the direction is bad. There's a lot of room for improvement, I'll say that much. And, you know, had had Robin Hardy gone on to make many other films, maybe he would have improved and honed in on what he was doing. But but anyway, um, I, I just think it's such... Uh, for the kind of things that get under my skin, it's just such a perfectly crafted, like, horror experience. And... And I do just find it incredibly watchable. As I say, for me, it just zips along. And yeah, so I mean, I'm giving it a 10. It's it's one of my all-time favourites. I, I think it's incredibly culturally significant. It's had a huge influence on film as a whole, even if not necessarily directly. See, this is, this is interesting because what you were saying about how, you know, people believing in stuff and uh, it freaks you out because they, you know... <laughs> it's creeped out but that's how i feel about you giving that a 10 it's like there's obviously because oh. there's no way anyone could in their right mind give this a 10 out of 10 so you're obviously been brainwashed by some sort of cult some sort of wicker man <laughs> cult and it's like really creeping me out right now so this experience right now is giving me more than the film did <laughs> jesus so, so well done you you <laughs> you've six, helped you see why you, it's scary you made me see the light i'm just gonna slowly back away now <laughs> Join us at the Wicker Man Festival. I'm not saying it's a perfect film because I mean, it isn't. That's what a ten but... out of ten would be. Perfect score. So no, it's not. It is, Alan. It is, though. Come on. No. I mean, that's exactly what it is. Definition. Don't pick no, the scab, Alan. <laughs> so we're going to touch on the Wicker Tree now. Sol, you probably yes. know an awful lot more about the background of this than we do, um, given your experience of being so close to Robin Hardy physically. <laughs> Once. Well. Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to look it up now, actually, uh, because, as I say, I was at a very early screening of this film. It was Fright Fest, if uh, you're familiar with that here mm. in the UK. So it may well have been the world premiere. I don't know. I just want to see if it if it was. Ah, fucking Canada. <laughs> I was at the second ever screening of this film to the public. The first was in Canada at the Fantasia International Film Festival on the 19th of July, 2011. I was at the Fright Fest uh, screening in London on the 27th of August. So uh, hmm. there we go. 
I think this is the film. If you have any inkling that perhaps Robin Hardy's not the best director, <laughs> I think this is the film that kind of cements that and makes you think like, oh yeah. And he's not the best writer either, actually, is he? Because <laughs> he didn't write The Wicker Man, uh, or at least he's not a credited writer uh, on it. You know, that's Anthony Schaffer's credit. Uh, whereas The Wicker Tree, this follow-up, was written and directed by Robin Hardy, and I think that's one of its biggest flaws. Um, <laughs> Based on a book by Robin Hardy, too. So. <laughs> yes, well, I mean, this is something he was trying to get off the ground for, for years. And and at that Q&A, you know, someone kind of asked him why he hadn't made more films, and he kind of basically said, and I do believe Nobody this. Nobody will give me any money to do it. He's a very kind of uppity Michael Winner esque man, from what I remember. So he would have been about eighty one at this point when you met him. Probably, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, just an ordinary old man then. Yeah, okay, but he, but he did say, and I do believe what he was saying. Like, well, I didn't really want to make any more films. Like, I, I was interested in doing other things, and I went away and I wrote some books and I acted for a while. Because this is the thing, I, I think he got an acting gig on a a pretty steady acting gig for a few years on a TV show. Shortly did after he? directing The Wicker Man. Well, if he did, he kept uh, it yeah. off his credits. Yeah, he managed to hide it. <laughs> yeah, he was in he was in something called Somebody's Daughter for one, two, three. Alright, five episodes. Maybe not the steadiest acting <laughs> gig in the world, but but my like it, it does seem like he went off and kind of did other things. You know, I think he wrote a few books, he he did a bit of acting. I think he might have done a bit on the stage here and there. He just seems to be a kind of jobbing, you know, flouncy artist. Yeah. And I, I can totally believe that he wasn't overtly keen on directing another film for a little bit, and then he ended up directing a follow-up called The Fantasist in uh, 1986, uh, which doesn't seem to have been particularly well-received and probably made him think, yeah, fuck it, it's too hard. Because, it, you know, it's it's fucking hard work to pull a film together if, if that's not your, like, calling. But at a certain age, he obviously thought, oh, man, The Wicker Man's the most successful thing I've ever done. I should really try and milk that a bit and try to get some sequels off the ground and that's ultimately you know what became the wicker tree and and yeah he did write a book of the same name uh oh no sorry not of the same name he wrote a book called cowboys for christ my understanding is he kind of had a an idea for a film he wanted to make called cowboys for christ couldn't get the funding wrote the book because that was something he could do he could get it published to make a bit of money and in doing so, that kind of cemented what he wanted the film to be, and it changed into whatever uh, difference there is between the Wicker Tree and his original vision for the film. I can't imagine there's a world of difference between the two, because, you know, it is basically just a Wicker Man rehash. <laughs> there's not a lot of unique stuff in it. Um, and before that, like, apparently Anthony Schaffer actually wrote a treatment for a, for a sequel quite early on, which um, sounds fucking mental, and, like, he didn't really have any idea of how to do- make a good sequel to the film either. What what was the what's the top line of it, do you know? Basically, Iwa Wuwa was going to come back, he was going to somehow escape from the Wicker Man, survive it, <laughs> and then a series of events was going to lead to the old gods being angry at the village and it turns out they're real and the dragon gets uh, awakened and oh. kills everyone or something. Oh no. Oh dear. <laughs> and apparently everyone apart from Anthony Schaffer hated it and that's why it never really went anywhere because it didn't even have the backing of for example Robin Hardy. <laughs> and I think understandably why because yeah you you're that's a hard uh, a hard left to commit to oh it's all real and supernatural in a way that the first film isn't. On the other hand, give him credit, he's trying to do something new with it. 
But Robin Hardy obviously felt like, no, we shouldn't do that. We should do the exact same thing again, but not as well. Uh, <laughs> so we made The Wicker Tree. <laughs> it's an interesting film to compare with The Wicker Man, because it's kind of like, look how fine a line there is between madness and genius. Look how close the pieces can come but just end up being completely and utterly terrible. Because, <laughs> I, I mean, no surprise here. I don't, the Wicker Tree is not a particularly well-regarded film. I mean, what is it? It's, it's about some Christian missionaries, but they're American this time, because Christianity doesn't really exist in the UK in quite the same way as it did in the 70s, I guess. They get sent off to a little village in uh, Scotland, is it again? And... Mm-hmm. Um, Graham McTavish is the leader because Christopher Lee was too old and decrepit <laughs> to do it and had to back out at the last minute. And and that's one thing. Every single person in this film is either, if not terrible, completely miscast. Sometimes both. <laughs> I think the casting is awful. It, like People are crammed into roles where they just don't quite fit. And Graham McTavish is probably the best thing in the film. Mm. But he's a perfect example of this. He was set to play the butler character. Mm. Oh. And then Christopher Lee was too decrepit to reprise the role of Lord Summerisle, <laughs> which was the original intention. So Graham McTavish had to step in at the last minute. And he's not right for that role. Like he's he's given it his best, but he's just not right. You know, there's just not enough there. Really, there's not enough personality yeah. there. It doesn't help that the character's absurd. He's like some yeah. like nuclear power plant. Like at one point, he even references Mr. Burns from The Simpsons. Uh, and I, <laughs> yeah, I, but 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 or as he calls him Monty, right. Monty oh, Burns dear. in The Simpsons. <laughs> yeah. The 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 most wonky line of dialogue i think i've ever heard in a film that felt like such a like uh oh, I, I better call myself out on this character because uh, people are just going to compare <laughs> it anyway so it's like robin hardy was uh yeah thinking he needed to do that himself but that's just bizarre in itself because what his nuclear power plant has made everyone infertile so now they need to do some kind of sacrifice to that was it like that whole thing Fertility never quite bullshit never yeah. quite sort of ran together did it it was just sort mm. of a couple of mentions of it, it was like oh yeah it's a little sleepy village we've got our little customs oh and the nuclear power plant up on the top of the hill there um yeah that's that's all we've got here you want to ride this horse <laughs> but the uh the main character is uh well i thought it was beth anyway and she's supposed to be this kind of britney spears beth boothby <laughs> she's sort of like which is a clear like oh well I'm writing a character and I'm going to call her Beth Booby, but I'll change that before I give the script out to anyone. <laughs> well, what should I change that name to now? Beth Booby. Oh, yeah. Boothby, okay. And she's such a Britney Spears, it's like if Britney Spears became a sort of born-again Christian kind of thing, and there's really clunky exposition to get this across. There's a bit where she's like singing in some church, and then the news report is like, it's being reported as if it's like BBC, and then the reporter's like, and now for a song from Beth's past, and then it plays this horror pop song and she's trying it's to turn just off the a thing terrible and, it, song. and she's I doing mean... the worst like she's trying to turn off the tv but she's doing the most horrible acting of like looking at the remote and just mashing it with her hand and it's like oh for god's sake and then there's a bizarre shot of like a ghostly image <laughs> oh. of herself dancing in the living room with them that was because she's a ba- embarrassed of her past but it's it i mean look i'll give the film some credit for attempting to retain its musical roots from the previous film but the music is just terrible i mean say what you will about the music in the first film at least it kind of sounds like legitimate sincere shitty music these characters will play Mm. whereas this is like this sounds like an 80 year old man 
from the UK who's <laughs> never listened to country music in his life trying to <laughs> write a sexualized song. Yeah. And this this the person singing it sounds like she's never encountered music before. <laughs> She just can't sell the lyrics. So, call me a slut. Call me a whore. She just like can't. And the, the lyrics are so bad. It's just terrible. But they 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 made up for that with the top top end production quality of the music video. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's it. It's like she's meant to be this, you know, huge celebrity, but her music video's got, you know, enough of a budget for two awkward uh, kind of cowboy people to line dance next to her in like a is it a barn or a bar it's it's just one know, static clearly, camera <laughs> yeah, clearly shot with less budget than the wicker tree had put it that way which is just not believable and then yeah she turns up like at the beginning she turns up in a limo like a massive limo so she's obviously a big star or whatever but then she's like oh, yeah. off to scotland to do a bit of missionary work you know that's where missionaries go and you know with the wicker man you can kind of buy like look it's a bit suspicious this guy's gonna go off to this little village and disappear but They'll probably get away with it as a one-off, which is kind of what this is being pegged as. Make the plane disappear, and it's just like, well, it could have landed anyway. Mm. But the idea that they can get away with killing like a huge celebrity in this little sleepy town that's not even off the mainland, and like you know, jumping right to the end here, but they ultimately like what stuff her body and kind of dress it up like a waxwork. It's yeah, like you're not. Like you're not disposing of they make a huge thing about how well they disposed of the uh the evidence of the other guy they kill because they eat every ounce of him which you know i don't quite buy that if you like eat him alive and there's blood and guts everywhere which there are in that sequence you kind of see briefly just all over the courtyard that then they go well we ate all of him you'll never find anything (laughs) probably a little bit of of blood on the ground probably a little (laughs) bit of blood dna somewhere probably some bones to be honest unless you ate those as well (laughs) but with her like they're just keeping her body there it's fucking weird (laughs) oh yeah sorry policeman that's our life life life-size beth boothby mannequin (laughs) that we had made up to commemorate her disappearance But that, yeah. that's it it's like this huge like yeah like let's say it's a britney spears style star just knocking on doors in Gla- <laughs> inner city glasgow <laughs> with a cowboy going uh would you like to take her a leaflet and they're like no <laughs> but the leaflet the leaflet's very important oh dear so weak the whole thing is just weak other than the kind of weak writing and direction i think this is really poorly acted oh yes it's everyone. It's like the, the the extras in the film are bad. <laughs> there are there are many shots of like extras, and I was just thinking like you get the same thing in the Wicker Man, like these old craggy Scottish villagers just looking out at like you know what's going on over the horizon or whatever. But it's like when they do it, you buy it. They're like, yeah, that's a legitimate craggy villager. That's mm. creepy. They seem natural in this environment. Whereas here, it's like. I don't know, is someone they got off Star now who has like driven down to this little village and dressed up as a 
fishermen and it's just like doesn't play at all it's terrible i completely agree and i was wondering about that because i was like surely they'd have cast just like locals maybe or something again but um yeah it just doesn't have the same i don't know they look like a lot more young people in like the villager Mm. sort of shots and i was wondering like oh is that just because they got a load of cheap young actors to do it because it just doesn't well part of the part of the tone but part of the story is there's no kids so Mm. maybe it's supposed they're supposed to be like the last generation that have were born or something. I don't know, maybe they were going for that. Yeah. But yeah, there's um so Clive Russell who plays the butler guy. I I primarily know him from comedy stuff. And indeed mm. he's playing this role as a comedy role. <laughs> but the rest of the film isn't the same tone. <laughs> he's doing a mad eye thing, isn't he? Yeah. I do wonder actually because people often talk about the Wicker Man as a dark comedy and I mm. I don't really get that. I don't mm understand what people are talking about when they say it's hilarious but you do encounter these people and the wicker tree is seemingly also supposed to be a dark comedy according to its director but that's what people say when their films are laughably bad yeah that is what that is the tommy Wiseau defense isn't it (laughs) i think he is trying to make a comedy but i don't think he has any concept of how to do that exactly because you know that's a decision that he's obviously okay to that that butler is a comedy performance and it just doesn't make any sense in the context of what they're doing and and i don't know i I think the wicker tree feels much meaner spirited than the wicker man like the wicker man is bleak and disturbing and unpleasant but yeah, this is basically going, look at these stupid Christians, we're going to kill them. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. The, the Wicker Man is kind of like, look, here's some ideas and a bit of a discussion and, you know, is this any more mad than that? And so on. Whereas the Wicker Tree is just like, you fucking idiots. You, everyone, you fucking pricks. <laughs> it's, it just feels a lot more crotchety, I suppose. <laughs> what about that cowboy, cowboy boy guy? <sighs> no, well, I don't know. I, are the are the two Americans actually American? Because their accents are incredibly grating. <laughs> and I don't know if it's just the juxtaposition of them against, you know, a bunch of like English and Scottish people, but Well Beth Boothby has literally never acted again before <laughs> or after this film. Wow. Uh, Henry Garrett was born in Bristol, so that Yeah, okay, that there you go, that makes sense, because they do not seem huh. like legitimate american accents and i think that is hugely detrimental to the film i think it massively takes like i i think it just feels insincere and false and i think if we did feel like oh this is a legitimate country music you know star coming over maybe that fear of the other maybe they could actually tap into some of that but it doesn't it just doesn't play Mm. it's insincere Mm. yeah and is that what robin hardy did at the q a did you ask him why I, I didn't. I was seething by the time we got to the uh, Q&A <laughs> portion, so I just let other people talk to him. And... Did you tell him he'd betrayed you in your memories? No, no. It was, it's just sad, you know? Everything about this film is just sad. Christopher Lee is in it, Oof. and it's one of the most depressing sequences committed to film ever, I think. Oh, it's um, It's mortifying. It's you know what is he on a green screen? He's like lit to <laughs> fuck. You can't you can like whitewashed out on his beard. You can barely see him. <laughs> I think it is a green screen. There are some really horrific green screen in this film. Actually, yeah. I think he's in a wheelchair, but they're kind of shooting him as if he stood up. <laughs> mm. And I I I get that they were like, well, look, we've got to have some DNA, some connective tissue to the first film, and they were obviously very upset that Christopher Lee was too ill and old to reprise the role, which is what they planned. 
I don't know, like, maybe not don't do it, but find a way to do it better. Mm, It's such a weird non sequitur. It's, uh, I don't know what it's doing. It's really strange. Anyway, you know, I I think it's a pretty terrible film. Oof, yeah. The Wicker Tree itself, uh, just just to compare to The Wicker Man. Oh, God, yeah. We don't really get a good, cool shot of it. It actually looks quite cool when you see it. It's like it's twisted wicker into a tree, like a dead tree kind of shape. I think it could look really cool, but you don't really get any sense of scale on it or or a good shot of it. It's always just at the base and the man burning and, and all that. Oh, that was terrible, all that stuff. Where she pushes him on the fire. It was really bad. (laughs) Yeah, nobody Mm. cared to help. So we haven't rated the film. Do you want to do Mm. that? Yeah, I was going to say, should we we rate The the Wicker Tree? Mm. Uh, I gave it a sort of flat three for effort. Mm. I also gave it a three out of ten, yeah. um, It's not very good. I'm I'm giving it a two. I'm uh, more on Mm. the negative side here. Um, But yeah, no, it's really bad. You know what, it reminded me of... um, Because we looked at all those George Romero films not that long ago. And it sort of Mm. made me think of that. Like, you know, we compare Night of the Living Dead to whatever the... What was Survival of the Dead, the last one? Well, it's what I said then as well, that there really is something to be said for filming on 1970s film stock compared to modern digital techniques. I think if you you put the exact same stuff in front of an old 1970s film camera for the Wicker Tree, you know, we'd be talking maybe five out of ten for me, maybe four, but like, I would like it more. I would be more forgiving of how crap it is, but it looks cheap and horrible. Yeah, completely agree. Yes, if, if you want more Wicker Man from us, head over to our Patreon, uh, patreon.com forward slash dim returns. Uh, we will be releasing a the Minnesota looking at the Nicolas Cage. I don't even know what you'd call it. I mean, it's a remake of The Wicker Man, but it's it's something. It really is something. It's a quite remarkable piece of work, and we'll be getting into that and all that it entails. So yeah, if you want to hear us chat about Nicolas Cage dressing as a bear, punching women in the face, <laughs> yelling about toast, things getting burned. Please. Uh, it's not toast in the film, is it? It's just a doll or something. Uh, yeah, do do head over there and, and we'll put out a Diminisode to your liking. Jesus Christ!